What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. You are listening to Killer. This is case number 12, The Pike County Murders. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. April 22nd, 2016. It was the middle of the night in Pike County, Ohio. The Roden family were all fast asleep in four separate trailer-style homes. Killed execution style in the middle of the night while lying in their beds were Kenneth Roden, age 44, Christopher Roden Sr., age 40, Gary Roden, age 38, Dana Roden, age 37, Clarence Frankie Roden, age 20, Hannah Gilly, age 20, Hannah Roden, age 19, and Christopher Roden Jr., age 16. The only ones spared in this tragedy weren't unable or barely able to talk. Three children, aged four days, another was six months, and the last one was three years old. The youngest, four-day-old baby was asleep next to its mother, Hannah Roden. Just as soon as it had happened, the killers were gone into the night. Not a trace of them was found. The only thing left at the sites of the murders were the small children and a lot of questions. Who would want to wipe out the Roden family execution style? The grisly scene of the Roden family was first discovered later that same morning. At 7.49 a.m. on April 22nd, just hours after the murders, Bobby Joe Manley calls in to 911 to report that she has uncovered the bodies of her brother-in-law, Christopher Roden, and his cousin, Gary Roden. We're now going to take a, a minute to play the 911 call for you now. Man, man, you gotta tell me what's going on. There's blood all over the house. 
Okay. My brother-in-law's in the bedroom, and it's like, I beat the hell out of him. Okay. There's blood all over the front room. Ma'am, can you tell me what county that's in? Is it my county? It's my county? Yes, and they drug him in the bedroom. Okay, okay. I need you to get out of the house. Did you drive over there? Yes, I did. What's your brother-in-law's name? Huh? What's your brother-in-law's name? Just a few hours later, 1.26 p.m., Donald Stone, cousin of the Roden family, calls 911 to report that he found the body of his cousin, Kenneth Roden, dead in his camper a few miles away from the other shootings. We're going to play that 911 call for you now. 911 calls. I first want to talk a little bit about the Roden family tree. So it can get a little bit confusing because there are so many people involved in this case. And there were eight people murdered at a few separate locations. Um, and they were all members of the Roden family. And they were all killed execution style in the middle of the night. Most of them were shot in the head while laying in bed. So the Rodens. So you have Dana Roden and Chris Roden Sr. They are ex-husband and wife. Apparently they still live together or see each other frequently because, you know, Dana Roden is still there. They have three kids, Hannah Roden, Chris Roden Jr., and Frankie Roden. Now, Chris Roden Sr. has a brother, Kenneth Roden, who was reported in that last 911 call. And he also has a cousin, Gary. So Chris and Gary were the ones who were found in the first 911 call we heard. 
And then uh, you'll ha- you also have Hannah Gilly, who was present. I hope I'm saying that last name right. I might be mispronouncing that. But you have Hannah Gilly, and her and Frankie Roden had a uh, child together. Uh, that was the six-month-old. Uh, Frankie also had uh, was the father of the three-year-old. And then um, Hannah Roden had a child with somebody else, and that child was the four-day-old child that was with her. Um, when she was murdered. So I know that's a little bit confusing. I will post this on our website as well as in our chapters as part of the episode. So if you have a podcast player that supports chapters, I'll post this little map of the family tree if you want to take a look at it while you're listening. I know it gets a little hairy. In terms of the story, I don't know that it totally matters that you know everybody and how they're connected, but it's just nice to get that out there if uh, if you're so inclined to care. So what do you think of those 911 calls? The first one was definitely, there's a lot of emotion there. You know, obviously Bobby Joe walks in and finds, you know, Christopher and Gary both, you know, what she says looks like somebody beat the hell out of them. You know, they obviously were shot to death, but that happened just before eight o'clock in the morning. What I thought was crazy was, you know, maybe they were focused on that residence when they, when they called 911 and the police were there and you know, Donald Stone goes out to check on his cousin and finds Kenneth Roden dead in his camper. And this is, what, four, five and a half hours later. And that's only three of the eight so far. So things are unfolding kind of slowly that morning with everything that's going on. Yeah, and I don't know the exact timeline in between all the family being discovered, but I think what happens is, like, you get that first 911 call, and then they start looking at the other properties that are nearby and start discovering everybody. I, I think it happens. The first several people, I think probably the first like seven people are found relatively quickly within you know, that first 911 call. And then you have uh, Kenneth found like a few hours later by his cousin. Yeah, it, it was weird. You know, They also reported... An, I don't recall if she said it in the 911 call, so excuse me if I'm repeating the information, but I think the doors were locked. So after they killed these people, they locked the door and then they left. Uh, so I think she actually had to unlock the door to even get in and she finds them dead when she goes inside. No, no, that you didn't bring that up earlier. That's, yeah, that's even stranger. I mean, obviously trying to cover their tracks, you know, they want people to, they want to lead them to believe that the doors were closed and... You know, I don't know if they're trying to stage things to look like a murder-suicide or whatever, but by locking the doors, they, they they give that false sense of, well, the doors were locked, they were in bed, you know, how did this happen? Yeah, and it's strange, too, the way, like, the one person's reportedly beaten up, and, like, I don't recall from researching finding anything else about anybody being beat up. So uh, they were all just shot, so whoever was beaten was pissing somebody off (laughs) apparently and you have to wonder like did they were they really beaten or was it just there was so much blood at the crime scene that she just said that you know what was it really the case she did she did say in the call that there was blood everywhere so it could be a case of there was just as graphic as it sounds you know when they were shot that one or both of them could have you know been bleeding so heavily that it, it just sprayed everywhere they said they were killed execution style in the bed. So, yeah, it just the just the emotion and how dramatic that scene unfolded when she walked into that that first house trailer and found them. You know, you know, emotions were high. So everything you see is going to be the the intensity is going to be multiplied by a thousand. I'm sure. Yeah, 
it's just you know it it it's weird when you when you walk in and you discover you know you discover this you know like what like what's going through your mind like would you even feel safe being on that property at that point like i I don't even know if I'd stay there and call 911. I think I would get the hell out of Dodge. I'd be afraid somebody was still out there doing stuff. It's kind of crazy. Uh, I do have an article I found that kind of detailed a little bit about each of the victims. And I I wanted to read this. You know, I I think it's kind of good to kind of get to know a little bit about these people because it's kind of an abrupt case and it's very strange. You know, like there's not a whole lot about the family that's out there. It's more or less like just the way they were killed is what gets talked about a lot. So um, Chris Roden Sr., he was 40. He was a father, grandfather, and laborer, a quiet man who stitched together a patchwork of jobs. He helped build Big Bear Family Resort in Lucasville, and he continued to build decks and playgrounds at the campground. He hauled gravel and bought and rebuilt salvage cars, which is important because later we'll talk a little bit about that. He was found shot multiple times lying on the floor of a bedroom in his trailer near Gary Roden's body, and it appeared that he struggled with his attackers. And then you have Chris Roden Jr. He was 16. He was the son of Christopher and Dana Roden. He was a freshman at Piketon High School. He recently got his driver's license. He was small in stature. He was loud in voice and was described as a typical rebellious teenager with a penchant for parties. He was found shot multiple times in the trailer that he shared with his mom. Frankie Roden, he was 20. He was the oldest son of Dana and Christopher Roden. He was a father to Brentley Roden, age three, and Ruger Roden, who was six months at the time. He was engaged to Hannah Gilly. He worked at McCoy Lumber, and he was an avid hunter. He was shot multiple times. His body was found with Gilly. Their infant son was found alive between them. And then you have Dana Manley Roden. She was 37. She was the mother, grandmother, and she was also a nurse's aide. She often worked double shifts at Hillside Skilled Nursing and uh, Rehabilitation Center in Peebles. She was known to bring fast food hamburgers in for her patients. She was committed to her family. She was found shot multiple times in the head. Her body was found in the trailers that she shared with her children, Christopher and Hannah, and her five-day-old granddaughter. Gary Roden, he was 38. He lived with his cousin, Christopher Roden, who helped him overcome drug and alcohol issues. He was known as a kind and, ge- he was known as kind and generous. He was found shot multiple times. His body was found near Christopher Roden's body. Both were on the floor in Christopher Roden's trailer. He's buried in South Shore, Kentucky. Hannah Roden, 19. She was mother to Sophia Wagner, two and a half, and Kylie Roden, now six months, daughter of Christopher and Dana. She would have graduated from Piketon High School in May of 2016. She worked as a nurse's aide at Edgewood Manor in Lucasville. She was found shot multiple times in the bed that she shared with her then five-day-old daughter, who was physically unharmed. Hannah Gilly was the mother to Ruger Roden, now 11 months, a Northwest High School graduate. She did not have a job outside of the home. Her life revolved around her fiancé, Frankie Roden, and Ruger. She was shot multiple times and found in bed with Frankie. It appeared that she had earlier nursed the infant who was found awake and physically unharmed. And then there was Kenneth Roden. He was 44, father to four children and grandfather to four. Divorced from Stacy Rigsby in 2006. He was a hard worker who awoke daily by 4 a.m. to drive to his job at U.S. Utilities in Columbus. He lived by himself with his pit terrier mix brownie and a camper on Left Folk Road. He was shot once in the head and found in bed. So that's kind of the the summary there of uh, of the Roden family. The initial days of the investigation began, and a lot of rumors and speculations began to run rampant. The first press conference featuring Ohio Attorney 
General Mike DeWine, just hours after the grisly discovery, suggested there may be a link to drug-related activity. DeWine stated that they found evidence of a marijuana-growing operation on several of the properties being investigated. Authorities had conducted 50 to 60 interviews and executed five search warrants within an hour of the discovery. DeWine went on to say that the massacre was a sophisticated operation in which the killer or killers did everything they could to make it difficult to solve the case. DeWine stated that investigators believe the family was targeted and that the general public was safe and shouldn't feel threatened. In the immediate aftermath, the remaining Roden family gathered at a local church to pay respects to their slain family members. Their first issued statement, which was read by Kimberly Newman, a member of the Ohio Crisis Response Team, was as follows. The Roden family would like to thank everyone for all of the outpouring of prayers and support for their family. They ask that you continue to keep them in your prayers. They'd like to thank all law enforcement from Pike County and all surrounding counties for their immediate response, especially to Sheriff Charlie Reeder, for all his hard work. They ask that everyone be respectful for their loss at this time. They also have a plea to anyone who has any information on this matter to call 1-855-BCI-OHIO. The next several days see the Roden family being laid to rest and respects being paid by their families and the community. On May 12th to May 13th, authorities move a camper, hundreds of vehicles, and four mobile homes from the Roden family property to a warehouse leased by the Sheriff's Department in order to preserve the crime scene. Fox 19 out of Cincinnati, Ohio, would investigate the storage of these crime scenes over a six-week period and over 70 hours. They wanted to see how well the sheriff's office was protecting the crime scenes they took the time to move to a warehouse for preservation purposes. The investigation revealed that there was not round-the-clock surveillance, nor were there any security measures stopping people from entering the warehouse. There was also a chemical company that shared the compound with the evidence in the storage. Employees of the chemical company were witnessed near the entryway to the stored evidence coming within feet of the doorway. Legal expert Mike Allen said that he was shocked by the lack of security and it could prove the evidence to be virtually useless. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, Let's start kind of at the top. So Mike DeWine, Ohio Attorney General, states right off the rip that there were uh, marijuana growing operations that appeared to be on most of the properties that they investigate. And so the the first theories that come out about this case are drug related. You'll have, you know, there was a lot of back and forth in the media. And I even remember hearing this being that we live in Ohio, that um, there was a lot of speculation that these families were involved in, you know, drugs and selling of drugs and all of that stuff. And so uh, one immediately says, man, based on that and the way that people were murdered, this sounds like some kind of cartel killing. Like, this family just really pissed off the wrong gang, and they they came in and just executed them. So that was, like, really the initial theory that was coming down, like, within, you know, hours of the investigation kicking off. Yeah, well, once they started finding the growing operations, I mean, that's makes sense to me. I mean, it depends on the quantity and, you know, how large of a scale of operation that it was. To me, to come up with that theory, like, right off the cuff like that it sounds like it could have been a pretty significant size of an operation like they they were growing lots of uh, marijuana or whatever i don't know there i didn't see any details on you know if they're if they found processing stuff whatever but you know it's it had to be fairly significant for them to come up with that conclusion right away or that theory i should say yeah you know i never found uh like a whole lot of detail around the marijuana that they found but uh you know 
what I did find, you know, it, it seems like that area of the, the, the state where they live and that just general area is pretty ripe with people growing marijuana. So it, it's not something that is unique to them. Let's just say that. So people who live in that area, it's fairly common that they find these things there. So I think that's kind of what helps investigators kind of sift through like whether or not this is truly drug related or not is that this is fairly common and obviously they i mean you you said in there you know within a few hours they had already i mean interviewed like what was it 50 to 60 people or something like that like right away i mean they weren't messing around and so uh and that's what i like about this case i feel like the police did a fantastic job at least up front i mean we have that last little bit there we'll talk about but you know, up front, they're all over this. They're not messing around. Eight people were murdered and they're, you know, quickly interviewing people that they know that know the family and trying to like figure out what's going on right away. You know, there's no screwing around here. They're getting right on. Yeah. And rightfully so. And thank goodness, because they, I'm sure they were wanting to squash anything right away and make sure that, you know, there wasn't another target outside of that area. Say, I think they drew that conclusion that it was a very targeted execution because these are all very close family members on a very, you know, confined property to a few different households within a, you know, a small area. So, but they definitely, you know, thankfully for once, one of these cases, we, we see a sense of urgency from law enforcement to jump on this and start squashing things right away because it doesn't happen all the time. Yeah, absolutely. No, we see a lot of cases where law enforcement just either, drops the ball or isn't equipped to deal with something like, you know, a big murder case. So let's talk about that, the evidence that they move. So law enforcement actually physically moves. They rent out some facilities and they move all of the trailers uh, to these facilities, as well as like hundreds of cars that they, they bring with them. And that goes back to Chris Roden and his scrap metal work. Okay. So like, there's hundreds of cars they take though. I mean, there's tons of cars. I couldn't believe how many they had and they take them all and put them in storage. Um, but you know, it, and it was pretty expensive, uh, for the, the sheriff's office to do this. And so they do it for a period of time. They had, you know, they said they had round the clock surveillance and stuff. And then one of the local newspapers in Cincinnati, I think it was the Cincinnati Inquirer, or no, I'm sorry, it was Fox 19 out of Cincinnati. They go and they, they start investigating like, okay, so you guys spent all this money and time moving all of this stuff to this you know storage location. How secure is this location? How well are you guys maintaining these crime scenes? Because you, the whole reason you moved everything was to make sure nobody could come and mess with it. And so they start looking into it and they're finding that you know the gates to the entryway are unlocked and able to get into easily that they share the compound with a chemical company who can uh the employees could have walked in at any time you know when the news wasn't paying attention they could have been inside there screwing around like anybody had access to this place and there were no there was never any sheriff's officers sitting out there guarding the the property that's what they found right and i believe it comes out a little bit later that sheriffs kind of admit to it a little bit and they're like, yeah, we're watching it, but we're not doing it 24 seven anymore. It got too expensive. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's a little strange. Yeah, I think it is too. I, I think that if I de- disagree with anything that law enforcement did to this point, it would be moving all of that stuff. I think it would have been a lot 
less expensive to set up some kind of surveillance at the family property versus, you know, picking up and moving all that stuff. And there has to be some compromise there too, to the evidence with, with moving that amount of stuff, you know, to a secure location. I, I, I mean, I'm sure there was some, you know, they were meticulous with what they were moving and, you know, trying not to damage any of the evidence, but still, I think leaving it where it was and, it could have been a lot easier to set up some kind of surveillance at the farm, whether it's, you know, you know, perimeter cameras, whatever, and try to quarantine that area and preserve it as much as possible, I think would have been the better route. Yeah. Well, I have mixed feelings on that because, you know, if you moved that, that stuff, then you do have it preserved. And it depends on what kind of evidence they were able to gather. That, that kind of makes this whole thing, makes or breaks it. And so they either know or don't know what, what they have in those trailers, right? And those cars and stuff. So if they know that they have evidence that's very sensitive and they moved it for that reason, you know, but then left it unsecure, it's kind of like, well, why'd you waste everyone's money and time? But if you just are, are, if you just are leaving it there because you just need it in case you might want to go back to it or something like that, like, you know, that you want it, you want it there so that you can go review things as you start piecing things together you know, that's not so bad. But if you left it there, clearly the people who came out there were able to sneak up and kill eight people without anybody detecting them. Who's to say they weren't able to come back and burn it all down? Even if they were on some kind of surveillance, you still might not know who they are. Like if I somehow snuck around, wore all black, had a vehicle like miles away where they weren't surveilling, was able to get to the property, burn it down and and disappear, like then you just lost everything and you still don't know who did it. Like, yeah, you might have caught them on surveillance, but they're all, you know, they're all blacked out. You're not going to know who they are. So, you know, I'm kind of with them for moving it, even when it was not totally secured. No, that's a great point, though, I guess. Yeah, if it was a great point in saying that eight people were murdered and somebody slipped in and out basically undetected and did that, you know, it's far less of a crime to sneak back in there and burn it all down, even if you're on camera. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that's what I would be worried about, and I think they were too. Like, if they were able to sneak up on eight people and murder them, they're able to get back on this property and burn it all down and hide the evidence as much as possible and probably go undetected. And I'm guessing, I don't know for a fact, that the area that they're in is probably mostly, like, I don't know, probably fairly desolate. It's probably not packed in with houses and homes where they were, so it, was probably, it probably would have been fairly easy. That's probably what the sheriff determined was it's pretty easy for them to sneak back up here, even if we have cameras out here, to come out here and just, like, destroy evidence and us not be able to know who it was and get away without us catching them. So, you know, I, I kind of agree with them in this regard that they moved it. And the other thing is too, like, I know there's a big deal about it being not secured. And, you know, this news report comes from the perspective of like, kind of like snooping around, like, did they actually try to go in and like, go, go in there? Cause maybe it was a little more secure than they know. And police just weren't letting them know that like, it probably was under surveillance and that surveillance is probably a lot better because it's a confined area. And so if one of those employees from the chemical company wander in there, they're not going to be dressed in all black and have a ski mask on and go in and start screwing with things. Like if you knew that stuff was next to you, or if you knew you worked near a storage facility, like 99.999% of people are not going to go in there and disturb anything. Like knowing what's in there or not, like you probably just aren't wandering into the storage facility. Exactly. Why run the risk of leaving some of your 
evidence behind it could implicate you. I mean, that to me, that'd be the scariest part. I don't want to go in here and snoop around, but oh shit, you know, left some fingerprints or left some DNA of some sort behind and they swabbed it and found it in this massive search. No, I'm screwed. Right. And, and not only that, but like if you went over there and started screwing around with stuff, just knowing if you know what's over there, like just pretend that the people who work at this chemical plant know that that is the rodent family trailer situation or, or whatever, or some sensitive police info is over there, like some sensitive evidence, just knowing that it's the cops that own it right now, like it's under their protection. Are you going over there and screwing with it? Because that's kind of like going to the police station and screwing with stuff at the police station. Like you're just, that's not the place you're going to go screw with stuff because you're going to get in big trouble <laughs> real fast. Like it's not going to take much for them to figure it out. And, and that's just asking for it. <laughs> so I don't know about you, but if, if I knew or had an inkling that it was the sheriff's office that owned whatever was in there, no matter how curious I was, I am not going over there because I'm not getting arrested nope. for it. No, I would, I would feel the same exact way. And I'm, I'm sure the news reporters, in the back of their mind, they did the same thing. I don't think they would have been stupid enough to try to get in there because they knew what the implication would be right if they get caught, even if they're an, a quote-unquote investigative reporter. I mean, you see these guys on the news all the time, and they are always they always come across as real assholes, real in your face, and trying to get all the somebody to make a comment on film and, you know, whatever. They wear, they wear the stupid trench coats from fucking Sherlock Holmes days 30 years ago and they think it's cool but <laughs> I don't go down a tangent this guy's driving me crazy <laughs> but uh <laughs> they they know better just like you said they they know that they don't want to step within 10 feet of that place because if it's under surveillance it's own or it's protected and property of the sheriff's department at that point of, of all the people that would know better than to snoop around there I would hope it would be these reporters yeah exactly and that's kind of what I'm getting at like I don't think they actually like try to actually go in there and look at stuff because if they did, they'll maybe quickly find out that there's an alarm system set up and the police will be there instantly or there's surveillance and they'll get, you know, like who knows? I mean, they did things like drive through the parking lot and go up to the gate and like check those things. Yeah. On the surface, maybe it isn't secure, but you probably don't know the. De I mean, who knows? Maybe there's nothing. There might not be anything, but just knowing that it's the cops that own it, like, you know, you're probably not exactly. screwing with it. So that being said, let's move on. Um, in May 2017, a little over a year later, authorities began searching a 71-acre farm in Peebles, Adams County, that was sold a few months earlier and was owned by Edward Jake Wagner, Hannah Roden's former boyfriend, with whom she had a child, three-year-old Sophia. A second Wagner property was also searched the same day. In June 2017, Ohio Attorney General Mike DeWine and Pike County Sheriff Charlie Reeder asked the public for information regarding the Wagner family. The Wagner family had recently moved out of Ohio to Kenai, Alaska. The Cincinnati Inquirer received a quote from the family with regard to the purpose of their move, in which they stated, Really, the point of moving up there was basically just to get into a better environment so they wouldn't talk about us. Sophia is getting older, and so she wouldn't hear it. And then it followed us here. That quote was given by Jake Wagner, the father of Sophia. The investigators did not name anyone from the Wagner family as a person of interest or a suspect at this time. In August of 2018, investigators searched two more properties in connection with the massacre. The Flying W Farms in Pike County and a house on South Webster Avenue in Scioto County. Authorities were mum on what they were searching for, but both properties had ties to the Wagner family. In September of 2018, the Ohio Supreme Court ruled that the autopsy reports of the victims can be released to the public. This was against the wishes of the Pike County coroner and prosecutor. 
After the autopsies were initially completed, the media asked to see the reports but were denied, which led to the media suing for the records to be unsealed. The autopsy revealed that Christopher Roden Sr. was shot nine times, and most of the victims were shot in the head multiple times. The Wagner family responded to reports denying their involvement in the shootings. Angela Wagner responded to the Cincinnati Inquirer via email denying their involvement, stating that what happened was devastating and that Hannah Roden was like a daughter to her. John Clark, the Wagner's attorney, also issued statements denying the Wagner's involvement, stating a year ago, four of the Wagner family members had provided laptops, phones, and DNA samples to investigators and agreed to be interviewed about the slayings. The family was being harassed while the real killer or killers are out there. Let's talk a little bit about the Wagner family tree, because I know I just dropped some names about the Wagners, and you're probably thinking, who in the heck are these people? So the the Wagner family that becomes under some investigation has a tie to the Rodins. So as I mentioned earlier, when I was talking about the Rodin family tree, I mentioned Hannah Rodin had a daughter, and she was the four-day-old daughter. So she also was in a relationship with... Uh, Jake Wagner. So that was the person who gave the quote there about moving to Alaska. And so they had a daughter together. That's Sophia. And so that kind of ties that family. That's how they tie together. Um, so at the top of the Wagner family tree, you have George Billy Wagner the third and Angela Wagner, his wife. And then they have two kids, George Wagner the fourth and Edward Jake Wagner. So that's the Wagner family, those four. They make up the main component of this case here. And so they are the ones who are, they're kind of being investigated by police and police are sniffing around and their names are getting thrown around a little bit. And then they start getting a little weird, if you will. And so they start selling off property that they own and the police aren't searching it as soon as they sell it. And then they move to Alaska, which is just bizarre. <laughs> so... Hey, we're, we're not guilty, but we're going to move as far away from Ohio as physically possible while still being a United States citizen. <laughs> it's just like, if that's not suspicious, I don't know what is. Yeah, no kidding. That's the first red flag for sure. For me, it would be anyways. Why in the, why in the hell would they just pick up, turn tail, and move all the way to Alaska just because they don't want the, the young child to, you know, start hearing about rumors about this and that and, you know kind of tarnishing what she thinks of the family. It sounds a little bit insane to me. Yeah, it is. And also not mentioned in that family tree, there's two grandmothers, one on each side, of uh, Rita Newcomb and Frederica Wagner. And they're the mothers of, you know, Angela and Billy. And they also are kind of, you know, stirred up in this. And I believe one of them runs that Flying W farm or whatever. And uh, yeah, so, so police start like looking into them and they're, questioning you know what's going on here with this family something strange is going on and then you know so they start kind of barking up that tree and like <laughs> like we said earlier they just moved to alaska <laughs> like out of the blue it's like what the heck is going on and and to relate to this story a little bit on a, on a slightly a couple different levels i may or may not have some family in southern ohio that has let's say similar living arrangements i don't want to throw anybody under the bus but for them to be a close-knit family on a small farm you know, and there's a couple other small farms connected and just one, one subgroup of that. These, they're all really close individuals. You know, it's close family. And for one small group of them to just pick up and move, like you said, to the furthest possible place and still be a U.S. citizen, 
that had to be red flag to authorities. People just, you know, if they've been vested in an area and, you know, even, even if they don't have a lot to show, you know, for their family, you know, the, in this case, you know, a bunch of house trailers are growing dope, you know, whatever, but still, and generally speaking, these families are usually pretty tight knit. So for them to just uproot and, you know, hit the road is, is a little bit crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, packing up and just heading to Alaska is not a thing most normal families do. <laughs> so, um, you better have good reason why why you're just like up uprooting your entire family and heading out to Alaska. Like, you know, it's just uh, it's strange. On November thirteenth, twenty eighteen, the Wagner family were arrested by authorities. Arrested and charged with murder are Angela Wagner, age forty eight, her husband George Billy Wagner, age forty seven, and their two sons. George Wagner IV, age 27, and Edward Jake Wagner, age 26, father of Sophia. There was an obsession with control of the children, stated Attorney General Mike DeWine. Two others were also arrested and were believed to be involved in the murder or the cover-up of the murders, Rita Newcomb and Frederica Wagner, mothers of Angela and Billy Wagner. Frederica is accused of forging custody documents. They did this quickly, calmly, and very carefully but not carefully enough, said Pike County Sheriff Charles Reeder. Prosecutors allege that Angela Wagner purchased several items in the months leading up to the deaths of the Roden family, and those include specific shoes from Walmart, brass catchers, items with which to build brass catchers, ammunition, a magazine clip, a bug detector, and or items that were uh, used to build silencers and or various other items in preparation for these crimes and indictments. Brass catchers are used to collect discharged bullet casings, for those who are not familiar. The Roden family murders is the largest homicide investigation in Ohio history. Mike DeWine stated that authorities conducted tens of thousands of hours of investigative work, followed by more than followed more than 1,100 tips from the public, and conducted 550 interviews. The drug theory that was initially part of the investigation due to the discovery of the marijuana growing on the property was dismissed. The Wagner family was also charged with conspiracy, engaging in a pattern of corrupt activity, tampering with evidence, unlawful possession of a dangerous ordinance, forgery, unauthorized use of property, interception of wire, oral, or electronic communications, obstructing justice, and aggravated burglary. So this family just kind of comes out of the woodwork, if you will, a little bit, and then just suddenly becomes like their primary focus. So the case got kind of quiet there for a while, and there were a lot of articles that you would come across while researching the case where it was in between the time that uh, the murders happened and they catch these the Wagner family. Prior to that, you know, you'd get a lot of those articles and they'd state like, you know, nothing's going on in this case and where are we now and blah, 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 blah. But meanwhile, you start reading about it. Uh, Wagner family must have been of interest to the police for quite some time. And so they were just doing their due diligence trying to connect the dots. And so I think that kind of goes back to why that storage facility wasn't under such tight securities because I think they kind of figured out who it was, but they just needed to piece it back together and that maybe the evidence wasn't necessarily within the trailer. It was more or less elsewhere and the evidence that they needed, they already had. So I'm I'm sure, sure there's some stuff that they got out of that trailer that they'll use when they go to trial for this, but this is very recent. I mean, this was just a couple of weeks ago, um, November 13th. So that's awesome that they caught these people because that was a case that people were just like, perplexed by and like i said earlier you know they had a lot of this uh 
gang theory and drug theory and all this stuff. And then comes to find out that they really think it's more or less over the custody battle that was going on between Hannah Roden and Jake Wagner. Yeah. And it, it completely sounds like that was the case with the, you know, the forged custody documents and things like that. It was, sounds like the family was the obsession of making sure that the, they had custody of that child was you know, strictly the motive. And like you said, it, it took a little bit of time to put the pieces together, but you know, they have, they have the evidence They have this Wagner family that just picks up and moves away. I think we stated earlier that some of the evidence that was gathered, you know, from their warrants was, you know, laptops and whatever. So like you said, I think they knew who they were dealing with, you know, a lot sooner than they had came out and, you know, they wanted to make sure all the pieces were put together before the arrests were made. You have computers with items to make brass catchers and ammo and clips, bug detectors, how to build a silencer. It, <laughs> no pun intended, but the, you know, the smoking gun is right there. They picked up, they moved away and all the stuff in their search history is right there. So. Right. Yeah. And so I know you put together some audio, um, about the arrest. So let's play that now and we'll take a listen and then we'll dissect that before we wrap up. Well, good afternoon. We promised that the day would come when arrests would be made in the Pike County massacres. Today is that day. Yesterday, a Pike County grand jury indicted four individuals for aggravated murder with death penalty specifications. George Billy Wagner III, his wife Angela Wagner, and their sons George Wagner IV and Edward Jake Wagner. After an extensive, thorough joint investigation by the Attorney General's Office, the Bureau of Criminal Investigation, as well as our Special Prosecution Section, and Pike County Sheriff Charles Reeder's Office, these four individuals are now in custody for allegedly committing this heartless, ruthless, cold-blooded murder. These are the faces of the victims, an entire family and members of their extended family, massacred. Many of them were killed as they slept. They are Christopher Roden Sr., age 40. His ex-wife, Dana Manley Roden, age 37. Their children, Hannah Mae Roden, age 19. Christopher Roden Jr., age 16, Clarence Frankie Roden, age 20, and his fiancée, Hannah Hazel Gilly, age 20. Further, Christopher Roden's brother, Kenneth Roden, age 44, their cousin, Gary Roden, age 38. All eight victims were killed in cold blood, they were shot in their own homes. They were brutally and viciously executed. The killers knew the territory 
meticulously planned these horrendous murders. The eight victims left behind an extended grief-stricken family, including four young children. Thankfully, in their only show of mercy, the killers spared the three children at the scenes. Children then ages three years of age, six months, and five days. At the center of this case were members of one family whom we believe the evidence will show conspired together to kill these eight people, eight of their friends. Four members of the Wagner family, a husband, a wife, their two adult sons, are all now facing numerous charges, including eight counts of aggravated murder each, one count for each victim. The aggravated murder charges also include death penalty specifications for all four suspects. Now, because this is an open prosecution, we won't be able to say much about motive, but you'll see from the indictments that custody of that young child plays a role in this case. We believe that the Wagners conspired together to develop an elaborate plan to kill the eight victims under the cover of darkness and then carefully cover up their tracks. We believe the evidence will show that the suspects spent months planning the crimes. They studied the victims' habits and their routines. They knew the layouts of their homes. They knew where they slept. And then after executing each victim, we believe the evidence will further show that the suspects tampered with the evidence, such as the victim's phones and the surveillance cameras on their properties. Now, as in all killings, even those that are methodically planned, mistakes are made. And it's our job to find those mistakes. We've been gathering evidence in this case for about two and a half years. In July of this year, at the request of prosecutors with my office's special prosecution section, along with the Pike County prosecuting attorney, Rob Junk, a judge impaneled an investigative grand jury to meet regularly to examine all the evidence we had collected over the course of the investigation and further to gather additional evidence. This investigation began the day of the murders. And with investigators discovering the last piece of significant physical evidence on October 30th of this year. The examination of that evidence was completed a few days later on November 7th. This particular evidence, along with all the other pieces of this giant puzzle, all the other key evidence in this investigation have led us to today's charges and arrests. In addition to aggravated murder, these four family members are also charged with a number of other offenses. They include conspiracy, engaging in a pattern of corrupt activity, aggravated burglary for allegedly breaking into the Rhodes home to commit the crimes, tampering with evidence, unlawful possession of a dangerous ordinance, 
unauthorized use of property, interception of wire, oral or electronic communications, and finally, obstruction of justice. The four suspects are also all facing charges of forgery for allegedly forging child custody documents. Two other people, two other people were also arrested today in conjunction with the cover-up of these crimes. And let me again emphasize, these two individuals were arrested in regard to the cover-up of these crimes. Angela's mother, Rita Newcomb, and Billy's mother, Frederica Wagner. The charges against these two suspects relate to their alleged actions to mislead our authorities. So there you have it from Ohio Attorney General Mike DeWine as he read out the, you know, charges against the Wagner family, which we already stated, but it's always good to hear it from, from the source. So um, what are your thoughts on that, Craig? This is all happening very recently. I, I think, you know, moving forward, I'm hoping we can do a part two to this, this case specifically when we get to the trial portion and, you know, when, when penalties are handed down. I, I, they didn't mess around with these, this Wagner family. They're just death penalty specifications with all charges or with the murder charges specifically, but for all members of the Wagner family. So I think once they get through trial and they get to that point, I, I don't see an issue with them, you know, getting the death penalty, obviously, unless they plead, you know, guilty to some of those charges. There's a lot of charges there, but you know, in most cases they'll try to plead down so they, they don't get the needle, but you know, we'll wait and see. <laughs> right. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how this case unfolds once it goes to trial. Uh, hopefully justice is served and, you know, they have the right individuals. I have, I have no doubt in my mind that they found the right group of people involved at that tie in seems to make some sense. You know, I'm not, I'm not surprised, you know, by that finding that it was somebody connected to the family. Uh, I am surprised though, that they decided to take out like eight people. I mean, that's just incredibly cool. They wiped out a huge portion of that family and, and, I'm a little bit surprised that the lengths that they went to to execute all of these family members, I'm a little bit surprised that they spared the children that were at these scenes too. Why, you know, when, when they're in that killing rage, what obviously there's some sympathy there for the children and that's why they didn't execute the children as well. But, and thank goodness they didn't, but what, what, what kept them from, you know, taking that final step and just killing everybody yeah, that was a strange part. You know, they had like some sort of moral compass. <laughs> you know, you're going to take out all these people and murder them, but not the kids. Yeah, ruin their lives forever by killing their parents and everybody around them but, and leave them there to, you know, to live that legacy down the road. They're too young to realize what's happening now today, but you know, someday they're going to have to face that reality. Yeah, I want to see too, like where where this ends up in terms of like, how did this go down? I want to hear the story, like, how did they actually go into each of these homes? Like, were all four of them out there shooting people simultaneously? You know, did they, like, all four, like, <laughs> the Wagner family, just all, every one of them was out there in a trailer at a different time? Or did they go, like, one trailer at a time with just, like, two of the people went and did it, and the rest were there for planning or, like, driving or something? You know, like, what's the strategy here? Like, that's kind of what I want to see. I want to see, like, how did they go about this this plan, like, what does what does the prosecution come up with? Like, what's their story? Yeah, that'll be a that that will be a very interesting piece of the trial, and I'm hoping that that information comes out as well because I I'm as well I'm very interested in seeing how 
how they went through with this plan. It, to me, I don't, it sounds like there was a, a very vicious assault at the one property and then the murders. But, you know, for the, for the most part, it sounds like everybody else was executed while they slept. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So, I don't know, we'll see how this unfolds. And then when we have any updates, I'm sure we'll bring them, bring them to you guys. And so I, I think with that, we're going to wrap up for, for this week. And so, um, you know, again, thank you guys for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Thanks for reaching out to us on social media. Uh, we really enjoy it. So if, um, if you wouldn't mind, do us a favor. If you like our show, go out and rate us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, that would be very helpful. It helps us appear higher in search rankings when people are looking for shows such as this. If you'd like to support us financially, please head out to our website, www.killerpod.net, and click on the support button at the top of the page or via the navigation menu. Or you can also check out our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com forward slash killerpodcast. And also, don't forget to follow us on all the normal social media sites. We can be found at Twitter at killer underscore podcast, on Instagram at killer podcast, on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash killer podcast. Or if you simply just want to shoot us an email, we can be reached at killerpodcast at gmail.com. That being said, Craig's going to go murder an IQ test and I'm going to eat some breakfast. I'm planning on murdering some bacon. Stay safe, everyone.